The Free Speech Coalition. 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 Podcast. Well, welcome to the Free Speech Coalition podcast. My name is Patrick Korsh, and today we have a guest who has been with us before. He needs no introduction, and our listeners would know him as the M- the MP from Epson and the leader of the ACT Party, David Seymour. Welcome, David. Hey, good day, Patrick. Nice to be here again. Excellent. Um, so the reason why we have you on primarily is because you have a new proposed bill, the Freedom of Speak bill. Now, you've been on the show before with Rachel Pauline, the FSC spokesperson who interviewed you earlier this year about the deplatforming of Dr. Don Brash at the Mass University. And um, you had drafted a bill reaffirming um, New Zealand's faithfulness to the free speech principles. And it was going to repeal Section 4 of the Summary Offenses Act mm. and more controversially mm. repeal Section 61 of the Human Rights Act. Mm. Now, have you since withdrawn the bill, right? And you've begun drafting a new one which cuts funding to universities. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say I've withdrawn it. I mean, I, I have had to um, take it out of the ballot, but mm. um, that's not because I wanted to withdraw it. It's because I could only have one bill. Right. Uh, what I've done is replaced it with something that I think uh, addresses a more urgent need in relation to freedom of speech in New Zealand, and that is the way that tertiary institutions trade off their duties of health and safety on the one hand, and upholding freedom of expression on the other. Right. Now, I've had this conversation with Dr. Michael Johnson of Victoria University, and this was our last um, podcast episode. And some, we were discussing that some are of the opinion that universities hold a sort of dual loyalty to several legal documents. One's the Bill of Rights Act, which has obvious free speech protections. One's uh, Section 161 of the Education Act, which has particular obligations to Mm. facilitate Mm. uh, exploration of knowledge. Mm. But another one's the Treaty of Waitangi. And this was uh, the Vice Chancellor uh, Jan Thomas's argument that since Mass University has integrated, or it has attempted to integrate uh, Treaty of Waitangi principles, that it has to balance the principles of the treaty as well as free speech principles. What, What do you say to something like that? That certain speech that could harm or um, diminish Treaty of Waitangi principles must be stopped. I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah. Look, the Treaty of Waitangi does not say that you have to hide your light under a bushel or suppress your ideas. It doesn't say anything other than uh, the Queen is sovereign, your property is safe and all people have the same rights and duties. It's actually a beautiful document. Whether other people have interpreted it as having to somehow have regard to a a set of, I I guess, sacred principles held dear to one partner in the treaty to the extent that it's not even permissible to criticise them, Uh, or in the case that Jan Thomas was referring, have a person who was an expert in monetary policy come and give a speech when Jan Thomas thinks that person's views on the treaty are unacceptable, uh, it's just a nonsense. I I can't even see how you're supposed to make that connection. And I've just tried my best in the last 30 seconds. No, it's all good. So it's it's of your opinion that universities are public 
entities, and are, are, is there any sort of argument for them saying, well, they're, they're quasi-private, and, 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 should, and does this bill interfere with the private side of their administration, and it interferes with the way that they go about running the university in their own particular way? Um, people want to argue if they're private entities or state entities. I don't think it really matters. What matters is where the money comes from. And at the moment, the reality is that they are overwhelmingly funded by monies from the taxpayer. And I think the taxpayer has a right to put some conditions on the receipt of those monies. Um, now, they can say, we're a private institution, we're going to carry on our own way without taxpayer money, and they're absolutely free to do that. But to the extent they def depend on taxpayer money, well, I think the taxpayer has a right to say if the university doesn't uphold free speech, no more money. And to put that in context, the Education Act already provides a series of criteria that tertiary institutions must meet in order to receive taxpayer funding. They've got to have courses of a certain quality and nature, they've got to have a certain number of students and attendance and meet various administrative and accounting guidelines. If they don't do that, they get no more money. Mm. Uh, what my new bill does is say, number one, if they don't uphold freedom of expression, then no more money. Number two, when it comes to dealing with their health and safety obligations, they cannot use concerns about mental harm to students as a health and safety consideration that overrides their obligation to uphold freedom of expression in order to get paid. Where does that, where does that come from? I, I'm sure that there are quite a few uh, psychologists out there that would think that mental harm is just as important as physical. In fact, there, there might be uh, um, it, the phenomenon of, of, of mental harm actually causing physical harm. So why do we draw the line or why would we wish to draw the line with, with physical uh, safety versus mental well, I guess one thing about mental harm is that it's subjective. Mm. Anybody can claim it. So when it comes to putting my right not to suffer mental harm traded off against your right to express your views, all I have to do is say I believe that your views are harmful or persuade a group of people that your views would be harmful to the so-called reasonable person and I can silence you. So that's the first thing. Uh, if I've been assaulted or had my property taken, well, that, that's very clearly something that we can demonstrate on the facts in a court of law. Uh, it doesn't involve deciding what political views or philosophical views a reasonable person should find uh, offensive. Uh, so that's the first thing, is the subjectivity. The second thing, ironically, is that it's going to mentally harm me if I can't express my views. So it's a nonsense to say that you're going to use the law to adjudicate what mental harm is. Mm. So the bill that, I'm sure, uh, the bill that covers Section 4 of the Summary Offenses Act and um, Section 61 of the Human Rights Act, that, that's still in the pipeline then at some point? Well, of course, the best way to get more bills on freedom of speech into the ballot uh, for Private Members' Day at Parliament is to elect more ACT MPs. So mm. you see the current polls, there are a few more. 
uh, that would allow us to have more than one bill at a time and perhaps would bring back the other one uh, so we could have multiple shots at making the House debate freedom of speech, hopefully persuading enough of our colleagues that freedom of speech is enough of an important value that they should vote for it. Of course, the more act MPs, the more votes there'll be for free speech. Uh, but for now, given I only allowed one bill in the ballot at any given time, uh, my current bill uh, would aim to deal with this trade-off between freedom of expression, as required by the Bill of Rights, and academic freedom, as required by the Education Act, as you mentioned, on the one hand, and health and safety on the other, because what we seem to have is some people who are genuinely worried about how they can reconcile their health and safety obligations uh, with their freedom of expression and health and safety, uh, and, and sorry, academic freedom obligations. On the other hand, there are people such as John Thomas, who I regard as a bad actor, who are deliberately exploiting that confusion uh, to push their own political agendas, such as stopping people like Don Brash from speaking on their campus. So you've mentioned that um, ACT is moving upwards in the polls. Mm. Um, why do you think that's the case? you think it's directly tied to these um, free speech debates that we're having um, as a society here in New Zealand now? I think that events have started to highlight X principles in sharper and sharper relief. So for years, ACT has said that you have the right to live as you please so long as you're not harming others, and you shouldn't be bullied or oppressed by arbitrary state power, by busy bodies, by people who think they know better for you. you know, we've been saying that pretty consistently for about 20 years now or more. Mm. What's changed in the last year is that for the first time in a while, you have a government that not only does that, because the National Party is not really much better, if you look at it objectively, but you've got a government that is openly brandishing its power against people's basic rights. And speech is part of it. Firearm laws are part of it. The way the rural sector has been treated with the Zero Carbon Act and water regulation and the ETS uh, is part of it. Um, and, and and the way the extractive industries, such as oil and gas explanation of Taranaki, has been treated, that's, that's part of it. Uh, even just the fact you can't get your groceries for, out for the car in a plastic bag because some idiot overseas threw theirs in a river, uh, that's part of it. So you've got one after another, the government sideswiping people's basic rights, and ACT has long been the sole principal defender of individuals' basic rights, including freedom of speech. Probably the other thing um, that's helping us is that the National Party, nine times out of ten, are collaborating with the enemy. You know, I've lost count of the times that the vote in Parliament has been 119 to 1, with the ACT Party being the only voice for individual rights. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's an ideological shift in national? The um, the Oberton window is, is, is moving further and further away from a pro-liberty um, beliefs, or...? Well, in order to have an ideological shift, you have to have an ideology. So I don't think you can accuse the National Party of an ideological shift. I think they have decided to adopt a political strategy, and it's basically this. We are better people. We should rule. If we obliterate any policy differences between ourselves and the Labour Party, then we will win on the grounds of being better people. Mm -hmm. 
So you recently hosted uh, Feminism 2020 at Parliament. It was an event that was originally going to be hosted at Mass University um, uh, mm-hmm. by the uh, women's rights organization Speak Up for Women. But once again, Mass University took the role of censor and deplatformed them. Why did you take it upon yourself to hold it at Parliament? Well, in hindsight, it was all worth it just for the news hub headline David Seymour host radical feminist conference at Parliament I mean how many people started the year expecting to see that right but, right um, you know, eat your heart out Lizzie Marvelly but um, look we're we're living in very strange times and I think um, the fact that a group of feminist speakers um, can't have a debate about the definition of a woman and the definition of feminism without being shouted down by the heckler's veto is absolutely shameful. One of the great things about our society is we have the ability to reason through our problems rather than allow brutishness and thuggery to prevail. We are throwing that away with the suppression and censorship of free speech. Um, So once these guys told me, and Annie O'Brien in particular said, you wouldn't believe it, we've been vetoed, or actually she said, we might be vetoed, And I said to her, I will host this at Parliament if you have nowhere else to go. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, Massey, true to form, Massey basically opposed to any sort of expression of views vaguely interesting, Mm. um, banned them. And I said, right, well, I'm going to come through on that promise, and we hosted it. And um, I'm sure that it came as a rather pleasant surprise to speak up for women. What was their reaction, that act, an act member uh, of all people um, came and support <laughs> their rights rather than those of labor or, or, or national? Um, look, I, I think it's fair to say that Speak Up for Women as an organization had traditionally found its political home amongst the Greens and perhaps Labor, and they probably had regarded ACT as being opposed to some of their values. But I think what's been discovered is that it was baseless and wrong. Um, ACT has always been the party that stood up for individual rights, and when push comes to shove, uh, we will stand up for principles when nobody else will. So uh, they, they ultimately, I, I don't think, should have been surprised, uh, and um, I, I was very proud to, to host Feminism 2020. What did your colleagues in Parliament think? Well, they don't think. <laughs> right, right. Not many of them, not often. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they just didn't have an opinion or, or you, you, you don't care? Who knows? I mean, knows? I, I don't really talk to them. I, I don't go to Parliament to make friends. I've got friends outside Parliament. That's fair. Are you still doing your, your free speech tour around the, the country? It's kind of wound up. I mean, we're, we're recording this, if, if it's okay to say, on, mm. on what, what is it, the 15th or 16th, 17th of December. Uh, so we're not going to inflict any more on people this close to Christmas, but no, that's it's, it's been fantastic. Uh, we've had you know, great crowds showing up. We've been to Whangarei, we've been to Hamilton, we've been to Omaru, we've been to Invercargill, we've been to Christchurch twice, I think, we've been to Wellington, we've been all over Auckland. Um, you know, there's not a lot of places we haven't been. I think we may have been in Palmer's North and Napier at one point. Um, so, look, it's, it's been fantastic. Uh, and, um, you know, I think... There is a fantastic group of New Zealanders out there who intuitively get it that one of the great inheritances of being a Kiwi is the right to think your thoughts and say what you think 
so long as you don't incite or threaten violence, you should be able to do that without fear of censorship. And uh, one thing that really annoys people is when it's somehow insinuated that because they believe in freedom of expression, they must also somehow um, rep you know, believe or want to express the most odious views that could possibly be expressed um, and being lumped as if you believe in freedom of expression, you must be a white supremacist or an extremist or something. Well, look, there may be a few people like that. Um, they've generally found that we're not really good allies of theirs. However, overwhelmingly, uh, it's just ordinary New Zealanders who get that's part of our inheritance and they really get angry when they get typecast uh, as being odious people for believing in something that is critical to New Zealand's success. I saw um, in one of the, the news articles about your, your tour, there was a rather, shall I say, sad protest in, <laughs> at one of the, uh, the lecture theaters at a university. Oh, um, yeah, that was in Dunedin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He, uh, this particular protester said that free speech is not the same as freedom from consequences. And this yeah. is this is a common uh, line that I hear from um, hate speech law advocates and those who are just support censorship in general. Can you explain where they've these there's the misunderstanding between um, between free speech and consequences? Well, I invited those guys to stay and debate. I mean, I actually gave this dickhead my microphone so he could explain what he thought. Um, and that's all he said, freedom of speech is not freedom from consequences. And, and then he sort of slunk off out the door. Um, and he said he had better things to do with his time, but I still really question uh, what, what such a person does with their time. Clearly not any sort of reading or self-education, that's for sure. I think what he's trying to say is that when you speak, it has an effect on other people's thinking. And... I don't know why he thinks that's a surprising uh, fact or an interesting fact. It's, it's usually the whole point of debate. And um, I'm just at a loss, really, to... I feel sorry for these people. Because, I, 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 I mean, they get so hit up, but what they're saying is a truism. That what they should do is have a look at Karl Popper, uh, you know, the great philosopher of, of knowledge and science, who said useful knowledge is is a falsifiable hypothesis? Hmm. Well, of course, speech has consequences. That, that's not what's important. Um, it's, it's just a truism. The, the question is, what sort of speech? And you know, we think that speech that is threatening or inciting of violence, we think that leads to actually specific consequences. People could actually do those bad things, and, and that's why we restrict it. But we also know that free speech around the world is almost synonymous with free society, social progress, people being happier, being able to express themselves. Mm. And um, you know, once you get into some testing some real hypotheses about free speech, other than free speech is not without freedom of consequences, uh, then then you find it's a very valuable thing to have. You invoked Karl Popper. Mm. What do you say about Karl Popper's um, uh, tolerance paradox? That in order to be a free society, we must tolerate all views except those who are intolerant, because it would break down this the the, the, the foundation of a tolerant society. Um, 
Is there any issue with that the, the hate speech ad, uh, law advocates have on us about this, um, this tolerance of intolerance you know, leads to intolerance in general? Well, my understanding of that is that the pop has been misunderstood and, and frequently misrepresented. Um, what, what he was really saying is that you know a, a tolerant society does actually have to tolerate a, a lot of intolerable views in order to survive. Uh, his paradox was not that you have to be intolerant of certain views. His, his, tolerant, his paradox is that, is that actually you're, you're not a free society if you're not prepared to, to tolerate odious views. Um, but anyway, look, I, I'm, not a, oh, I'm not a popper scholar, that's but, all good. but I, think, I think he's misrepresented there. Mm. Before we wrap up, um, the health and safety provision of your, um, of your new bill, mm. um, what sort of obligations and powers uh, does it confer on, um, on platforms and, and, and entities that it would cover, like universities? Are there particular procedures in this bill that require universities to satisfy before uh, speech is cancelled? And does it set up newfound dialogues between these entities and the police? It doesn't stipulate um, at this point what has to be done mm. in relation to the police specifically. Um, I think that would be quite a useful feature. Um, but we have focused specifically on mental harm. Um, I, I think trying to legislate administrative stuff gets very difficult. That's certainly what we've found in drafting it. However, what it does require is that when trading off health and safety against uh, freedom of expression, uh, then tertiary institutions must disregard mental harm as opposed to physical harm. Mm. Do you think there's, there's obvious room in the future to create more dialogue between these entities and the police? Well, of course, you know, a lot of this comes from Jan Thomas, who mm. it appears at the very least exaggerated her level of consultation with the police. It is very difficult to write legislation that, that requires a certain level of consultation because they'll always say, well, we've, we've done what was asked in the black letter of the law. Um, whether or not they followed the spirit of the law is, a, is another question. Mm. So, you know, it, it is difficult to legislate genuine consultation. Um, however, the fact that they potentially would lose their funding, that really motivates them uh, not to be... Uh, playing fast and loose with people's right to freedom of expression. Mm. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, David Seymour, and I um, hope to have you on the, the podcast in the future. And yeah, it's been a pleasure, Patrick. I hope it was uh, useful for your listeners, um, and I hope you'll have me back one day. Uh, definitely. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> if you like this podcast and wish to support the production of more episodes, you can go to www.freespeechcoalition.nz forward slash join. Be sure to add us on Facebook and Twitter, and if you have any feedback, comments, or recommendations of other potential guests, email us at coalition at freespeechcoalition.nz. This has been the Free Speech Coalition podcast. See you next time.